Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message from Joshua set as the Israelites begin to move into the promised land. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning. Welcome to week 11 of our series, Long Story Short, as we travel through the entire Bible in one year. Guys, we've made it through the first five books, sometimes called the Pentateuch or in Jewish tradition, the Torah. And that means we have looked at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So a really quick recap. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It begins introducing us to the creator and his creation. We read about the beginning of mankind. It's also the beginning of a nation through Abram or Abraham. This nation of Israel is isolated in that book as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's Genesis. Then we read Exodus. It's the book of deliverance. The book opens up with bondage in Egypt. And just like the nation of Israel was mediated through the lineage of Abraham, the deliverance of Israel is mediated through the leadership of Moses. So they're delivered out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land. When we get to the book of Leviticus, it's a book of worship. It's how do I approach God? I approach God only through blood sacrifice. Like God is holy and a sacrifice must be made to atone or cover for sin. And then when we get to the book of Numbers, it's a book of wandering and wondering. Wandering because they did not keep the commandments that God had previously given in the law. And it's their failure to believe uh, that they can enter the promised land. Thus, the wandering in the wilderness and also wondering, are these people ever going to get it right? And so when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, You've heard most of all of this before because it's a book of repetition. God repeats what he has already said in some of the earlier books of Moses. He does it through Moses to this brand new generation. The young people need to hear this stuff. And so Moses gives these three farewell speeches, which leads us now to the book of Joshua. Now, I like to think of the book of Joshua as like a bridge book. It's a bridge between the previous four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the next seven books. So what do I mean by a bridge? Like the previous four books, Israel is outside of the land. And the next seven books, Israel is inside the land. So Joshua... It's kind of like this bridge between the nation being outside of the land and inside of the land. God promised them a long time before that he would bring them into what he called the promised land. Now that it's this perfect, lush environment, but it's the land God promised them. It's the promised land. And it was what he had for them. And what God promised, he will do. So if you want to take your Bible and turn to the book of Joshua or find it on your phone, now, if you're following with a reading plan, we started this on Thursday. And as a reminder, when you see the word LORD, L-O-R-D, in all caps, that's the editor's way of translating the personal name of God, Yahweh. So sometimes you may hear me say Yahweh when you see the word LORD. I just don't want any be, anybody to be confused. So Joshua 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon and the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you in all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Okay, first things first, a little fun Bible trivia you can use at your next game night. Which famous Bible character of the Old Testament didn't have any parents? Joshua, because he's the son of none. Oh, wait a second, let the laughter die down. Like these are the kind of jokes that preachers think are funny. We're an odd bunch who enjoy Bible humor. But a real observation, Joshua is the successor of Moses. He's like this Moses 2.0. So you, as you read through, you wanna keep your eyes out for connections that the author is trying to highlight to solidify this connection. Some of the same things that happened to Moses are gonna to happen to Joshua. Yahweh speaks directly to Joshua, just like he spoke to Moses. And Yahweh says, I will, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Joshua is this new prophet for Israel. He's the spokesperson for the people to God and a messenger of God to the people. And they have similar storylines, like Moses sends out spies in Numbers 13 and Joshua sends out spies in Joshua chapter two. Moses leads the people through the Sea of Reeds in Exodus 14. Joshua leads the people on dry land across the Jordan River. Uh, there are both narratives about circumcision in Exodus four and Joshua five. Moses instructs the people about Passover in Exodus 12, and Joshua leads the celebration of Passover in Joshua 5. Moses meets the angel of Yahweh on holy ground at a burning bush, and Joshua meets the commander of Yahweh's army in Joshua 5, and he has to take his sandals off because he's on holy ground. Uh, the Egyptians are defeated with Moses. The Canaanites are defeated with Joshua. So all in all, Joshua is this new successor, this new leader, uh, which just to make one quick side point, like when the baton of leadership is passed from one generation, one leader to another, it doesn't mean that the story is over. Like we sometimes get stuck thinking about the good old days, but we need to wake up to the fact that we're living in the present and God continues to raise up new leaders and pushes the story forward with each generation. So now Joshua is gonna pick up where Moses left off and he's going to lead the people into this land. Now, a second observation, even though the book is entitled Joshua, the main character in the book is not Joshua. The main character is Yahweh. Like if you simply look at how many times each is mentioned, Joshua is mentioned 151 times, Yahweh is mentioned 170 times. This book is about Yahweh and how Yahweh keeps his promises. Just like he promised Moses, He's gonna give this land to the people of Israel because this is what Yahweh said. So you could say the third like, main character of the book of Joshua is the land. It's about the fact that Yahweh keeps his promises and that he promised he would deliver this land. This is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Joshua. Now there are several summary statements in the book of Joshua. Here's one of the summary statements. So Yahweh gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors and they took possession of it and settled there. Yahweh gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. Yahweh gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all Yahweh's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. 
Now that's one of many summary statements in Joshua that read about the same. It's about Yahweh keeping the land promises he had made to their ancestors. So what ancestors? Well, remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. Isaac, I will give these lands to you. Jacob, I will give you and your descendants the land. So with Yahweh as the main character and the land as a major plot line, you could outline the book of Joshua something like this. In 1 through 5, God brings them to the land. 6 through 12, God gives them victory in the land. 13 through 22, God distributes the land to the nation. And then 23 and 24, the people renew their covenant with God. The book of Joshua's main character is Yahweh. And the main point of the book is Yahweh keeps his promises. So you open chapter one, Joshua is the new Moses. He's about ready to lead the people into the land of Canaan that God has promised them. Like he's about to lead these people into battle. They're gonna cross the Jordan River and they're gonna conquer the first city in view, which is Jericho. Now this is my favorite part in any movie. Like it's William Wallace's speech in Braveheart rallying the troops. It's the song montage and Mulan saying, let's get down to business to defeat the Huns. You were singing with me, come on. Or it's the scene in Rocky II where Rocky has the chance to face Apollo Creed again. But Adrian is worried about him fighting again because they're about to have a baby. And then the baby comes and Rocky might hang up his gloves and then Adrian gives him the word he's been waiting to hear. Now, I can't describe it as well as we could watch it, so let's watch it. You look so tired. Why don't you go get some sleep? Oh, no, no, I feel great, I feel great. Listen, I've been thinking, if you don't want me mixing with Creed no more, we'll make out some other kind of way, you know? There's one thing I want you to do for me. What? Come here. What? Win. Win. What are we waiting for? Take this! She says she wants to tell him something. He leans in and she says one word, win. And at that one word, the music starts and Mick says, well, what are we waiting for? You know, that one word, win, sets off a soundtrack and a training montage that will inspire anyone to action. And that is the scene that is being set up when Joshua is about to lead the people into the land. So maybe we're expecting the Braveheart speech or the Mulan song or the Rocky workout, but what do we actually get? Yahweh says to Moses, I want you to make some small flint knives. Now, why would he want them to make small flint knives? Are they gonna use these in battle like everybody gets a small flint knife? Well, not so much. Chapter five gives us the answer. At that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, most names in the Bible have meaning. Do you know what this place means? There's probably a footnote in your Bible. If you look at it, it will tell you that this place was called the Hill of the Foreskins. Now I actually have an artist rendition of the hill. No, I don't, I don't have that. Uh, but because this is like a strange picture, like for many reasons, one of which is we're expecting battle preparations. Soldiers getting in line, food rations being divided, bows being strung, arrows being fletched. But instead of getting soldier training, they get surgery. Like this is not how you normally prepare for battles. Like why do you have to do this? Well, verse four. Now this is why he did so. 
all those who came out of Egypt, all the men of the military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed Yahweh. For Yahweh had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised to their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Now it doesn't give us a specific amount of time, but that would have taken a while, right? But once the pain subsides, they're ready to go into the land, right? No, not quite. They have this weird meeting with this person in verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of Yahweh, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of Yahweh's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So does this sound familiar? Like we mentioned it earlier, who else was asked to take off his sandals because the land that he's standing on is holy. His name is Moses. You go back to Exodus 3 and you find the angel of Yahweh speaking to Moses from the burning bush. And now it seems like the same things happens. Like I'm, I'm telling you, Joshua is just like Moses. Very similar things happen to Joshua. Now this is happening to him. And this presence, this is all we know about this person right here in this scene. So who is it? Well, it's some kind of manifestation of Yahweh's presence uh, right here in this being. The commander of Yahweh's army stands there and Joshua has to ask, you know, like, are you on our side or are you on their side? And he says, I'm on neither side. I'm like on my own side, basically. And also take off your sandals, like where you're standing is holy. Now, this is an important thing to note. Have they gone in and conquered the land yet? Well, the answer is no. They're just starting the conquest. And already this commander of Yahweh's army is making it very clear to them that what makes the ground holy is whose presence? Yahweh's presence. Like maybe you've heard the term the holy land. Like you go on the holy land tour or you fly to the holy land. Like what makes the land holy? Your tour guide may point to some artifacts or biblical sites, but according to the Bible, what makes the ground holy is Yahweh. It's his land. It's his presence. These are his battles. Like remember the main character of the book of Joshua is not Joshua. It's not Israel. It's Yahweh. Whose promise is being fulfilled? Yahweh's promise. Whose land is it? Yahweh's land. Why is the land holy? It's Yahweh's land. It's like Yahweh wants Joshua to know for certain before they go in, this is Yahweh's land. But now they're ready to go in. And the first little city-state is Jericho. So chapter 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. So you cross the Jordan River and the first city you come to is Jericho. It was this walled city-state. It's about 10 acres. Now growing up in Sunday school, you hear about the city of Jericho. And maybe we think, 
about like cities today, but the mount of the city of Jericho is only about 10 acres. So that's the size of about eight football fields. Or if you've ever been to Charlie Daniels Park and done the walking trail around the whole park, like you've walked around Jericho twice. So if you think about like half of Charlie Daniels Park, that's how big it is. So with this in mind, we continue the story. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound the long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up everyone straight in. Now from a military perspective, this is like a joke. Like this makes no sense. You would at least expect to find something like, oh, and remember all those small flint knives? Make sure everybody has one of those so they're ready for the battle. But the, who does the battle belong to? Well, the text says, well, the victory already belongs to Yahweh because whose promise is it? Whose land is it? Whose victory is it? It's the main character of the book. It's all about Yahweh. So maybe you grew up on pictures like this, or maybe you had like a flannel board, like the people are walking around, they're carrying the ark with them. They go around six days, and then on the seventh day, they go around seven times. Maybe you did that at VBS. Uh, and they blow the trumpets and they shout in the walls. They come tumbling down and they're able to capture the city. And that's where the story ends at VBS. Like, yay, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But maybe this week you read the director's cut of the story. Like we seem to have a lot of these non-VBS editions of the story because we get to verse 21 and you go, oh, like where did this come from? They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. When you read that, you forget about all the childhood songs we used to sing. Like, what is this about? Now, maybe you just want to skip it, but this kind of thing happens all the time in the book of Joshua. Several different times, this is repeated over and over again. Now, the NIV is trying to help us out here in the English translation by giving us a two words to help us describe what is going on here. Devoted and destroyed. The Hebrew is just one word. Haram. Another way of translating this would be the ban, B-A-N, like to put under the ban. It's like dedicating something completely to Yahweh, when something completely belongs to Yahweh. Now it's verses like this that cause many people to ridicule Christianity. You know, they point this one out and they say, look, your God is a moral monster. They show you this and they say, your God promotes ethnic cleansing. Like that's the end of it. Like you worship that kind of God, well, good for you, but that's not the kind of God I want. So. How do we respond to that? Well, in their book, God is Great, God is Good, William Lane Craig and Chad Meister have a chapter devoted to this word haram. So here are some points that they make. Destruction language like this, like haram in the ancient Near Eastern literature is often exaggerated, like it's hyperbole. It doesn't actually mean absolutely everything. We see that in the Bible. Groups of Canaanite people who were, quote, totally destroyed were still around in Judges several different times. Like you can see it in Joshua where they were totally destroyed and then you get to the book of Judges and they're not totally destroyed. So what I'm saying is the language is the language of hyperbole. 
The greater concern was to destroy the Canaanite religion. Like they practiced child sacrifice and all kinds of bad things. But if people responded to God, they would have been delivered from the ban. So it's not ethnic cleansing because all kinds of Canaanites responded at different times. Rahab is a great example. And these people were delivered. And this is not the general war policy of Israel. That's in Deuteronomy 20. This was reserved only for seven nations that occupied Canaan. At that specific time, the general war policy of Israel was a very generous, very fair policy. They would rather not kill people at all. That's in Deuteronomy 20. Now, over the history of Israel, far more Israelites felt the hand of Yahweh's wrath than the generation of Canaanites that experienced judgment. This helps bring balance to the idea that God just hates everybody else and he only favors Israel. Well, you read the Bible and when Israel doesn't obey God, they face the wrath of Yahweh himself. So whose side is Yahweh on? It's not only Israel, he's on his own side. Basically, what God is doing here is he is delivering the land to the people because the land is his land, just as he promised. And they follow him, they will conquer the peoples in the land. But the land does not belong to Israel. It never did. It's Yahweh's land. It always has been. The Torah makes this very clear, all kinds of different verses. But here's one of the clearest, Leviticus 25. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. The holy land belongs to Yahweh. It's his promise and it's his land. And when the people are disobedient, God will discipline them and he will kick them off of his land. And they're like tenants. And Yahweh is the original land Lord. So the end of the book of Joshua, uh, the people renew the covenant uh, with God. And he says in his famous speech in chapter 24, now fear Yahweh and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. But if serving Yahweh seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. It was Yahweh, our God himself, who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And Yahweh drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve Yahweh because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve Yahweh. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve Yahweh. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve Yahweh. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So these are the last pages of Joshua and the people keep going back to their foreign gods and there's this continual warning. Don't do that. Because sometimes, oftentimes, when things are good, people forget about God. And that's exactly what was happening here to the people of Israel. They were continually warned time after time after time again and again. Like, if you obey Yahweh, you'll be able to enjoy the blessings of his land. So rumor, the book of Joshua is about God keeping his promises, specifically the promises of the land to biblical Israel. Now, maybe you get that and now you're asking, well, what does that have to do with us today? Like, how does that apply to us in our life today? These promises are not 
uh, for us, they're for biblical Israel. So like, what do they have to do with us? I think it applies to us. If you stop to think about the significance of the land, the significance of the land and the kingdom of God is that it, the land represents their ability to produce, to produce wealth, their means towards wealth. Like that's the land. It's this agricultural worldview. If you have the land, you can produce. So we understand something about the production of wealth and we can fall into the same kinds of traps that the people of Israel continually fell into. We can look at things and say, mine. That's what Israel did. It was never theirs, but they said, it's mine. Like Moses warned them about this. Joshua warned them about this. The prophets in the Old Testament will continually warn them about this. And the warning could probably be applied to us in our day of generating wealth as well. So here's what Moses said in one of his messages right before he died, before the people had entered the land in Deuteronomy 8. Be careful that you do not forget Yahweh your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourselves, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So basically Moses is saying, watch out for the good times because when the good times happen, it's easy for us to forget about God. But we must remember everything that we have belongs to Yahweh. Psalm 24 says, the earth is Yahweh's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. But it's easy to forget that. We live and we work in a world that does not promote this worldview. Our world promotes possessions, my car, my house, my job, my degrees, my titles, mine, mine, mine. And mine is often a word that leads to division more than unity. But what would it look like to live like all of this stuff was actually Yahweh stuff? Would I be more generous with Yahweh's stuff? Would I be a better steward of Yahweh's stuff? Would I worry less if it was actually Yahweh's stuff? And it's not just limited to like physical possessions, but our ability to produce and the time it requires to bring things to fruition. Humanity was given the responsibility in the garden to use our time and energy in stewarding God's creation. Everything in the garden belonged to Yahweh, but humanity was invited to share in the abundance and the process to produce the abundance. But humanity chose to look at the opportunity to gain more for themselves, to serve the God of self. There's something inside the Israelites that pulls them towards serving other gods. And I think it's the same thing inside of us today. I don't know what other gods you have in your life that are fighting for your attention and your worship, but we all have them. But like the Israelites, every day we face the same choice. Who are we going to serve today? Are we going to look out for me, myself, and I, and for everything that is mine? Or are we going to recognize the one behind it all? Is Yahweh the main character of our story? Does our hope come from holding on to the promises he has made? Do we find life in the word of God? Do we find strength in his presence? Israel's hope was in a promised land, and we have a similar hope. We have the promise of an eternal life in a renewed heavens and earth. The Israelites showed their faith in Yahweh by crossing through the Jordan River, and believers today have a similar sacrament of passing through the waters of baptism. Like we both relive the Exodus experience of deliverance from slavery and oppression, but ours is a deliverance from the slavery to sin and the oppression of death. 
through Jesus' death and resurrection, we hold on to the hope of our own resurrection into new life. Both eternal resurrection, but the experience of new life every day of our life as we're guided by the Spirit of God. And as the Israelites celebrated the Passover meal before they entered the land, we celebrate a Passover meal each week. This one is centered on Jesus. We take the bread and we take the cup and we remember and we proclaim the story of Jesus and what it means for our lives. It's our way of each week standing with Joshua and choosing who we will serve. So Joshua's challenge is true for us. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the God your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. That's it for this week. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next time.